Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us. My name is Robin Maggio, and I'd like to welcome you to our webcast, Tailoring Learning Settings to Engage Young Children with ADHD with Mary Wunderlich. Today's webcast is part of the National Resource Center on ADHD's Ask the Expert Series Educator Edition. The NRC is a program of CHAD funded by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and provides reliable science-based information about current medical research and ADHD management. It is a pleasure to introduce today's guest expert, Mary Wunderlich. Mary Wunderlich is an early childhood, early childhood special education consultant focusing on self-contained early childhood special education, preschool for all, Head Start, and child care programs. She is a facilitator of the National Association for the Education of Young Children at-Risk and Special Needs Interest Forum and holds positions on Illinois' Division for Early Childhood Boards and Committees. Ms. Wunderlich is the author of the brochure, Finding an Appropriate Preschool for Your Child with Special Needs. She is published in Child Care Exchange International, Attitude and Attention Magazines, and is a past leader of Chat of Chicago. Again, we are pleased to welcome our guest expert, Mary Wunderlich. Good day, everyone. One of the things that so often happens, and I, I don't want people to confuse fair with equal, did you ever hear anyone when asked to make a change for a youngster to do something different than their norm say, if I do that for Denise, if I give that to Dennis, then I'll have to do it for everyone. Or, I can't do that for Denise because it's not fair. Well. This is a graphic representation of the difference between fair and equal. People who are talking the way I just did, they are thinking they have to do it the same way for everyone. Being fair does not mean providing the same for everyone. It means providing each student with what he or she needs to achieve success. These are many of the children's challenges that then become your challenges as you search for strategies, modifications, and accommodations. So let's get to what can be done. You can create an environment for success. Have you ever heard of environmental deficit disorder? It comes from, the, the terminology comes from Dale Fink, and it's uh, a work that, that began not with him but with others in the mid-60s called Ecological Psychology, Eco-Behaviorism, Ecological Approach to Behavior, meaning simply our capacity to control the environment has huge impact on behavior and communication. Our goal, our aim, is to build a functional, effective environment in which appropriate behavior is more effective than problem behavior. So we can arrange the play space. We can provide enough materials. We can schedule enough time. We can plan smooth transitions. And we can make waiting productive. There are so very many things we can control and change. So let's get to one of the areas that's often uh, a challenge for people, the sit, the requiring, the wishing that children would be able to sit for whatever the activity is, be it circle time, story time, um, sitting in a center, whatever it is. Um, <coughs> Excuse me. What we're looking for with children actually is safe sitting. And again, thinking of fair versus equal, we're not looking that everyone be sitting in the same position. In my classroom, I, I pointed out to children and I modeled many, many ways that they could be sitting. They could be lying on their stomachs. They could be kneeling, just kneeling. They could be up on their haunches. I only had one rule in my classroom regarding sitting. If a child chooses a sitting position that makes them big and tall, then they have to be in the back because it just isn't fair to block anyone's view. So here are also some things to sit upon uh, that often help children. Just sitting on the floor in and of itself 
doesn't help is not a, a good a good and safe way for a lot of children to sit there's so many children who need what we call an active sit they need to have movement they need to feel sensory responses when they're sitting um, I urge people to look into the hokey stool it I just don't have enough words to describe how how highly I think of it I wish they also paid me to recommend it and then as I was looking this stay and play balance ball is a version of a stability ball that I've never seen for sitting and it just looked like a very good idea there are floor chairs there are bean bags there are bean bags others can sit on and then in the corner I have one that I I want to point out to you because I actually don't rep I don't recommend it it's it it's often found on websites um, when, when you're searching for things it's found on websites where the hokey stool would come up uh, this wobble chair the surface the sitting surface is slick when I went to sit on it I almost fell um, so it would mean if you were buying such such an item such as that core wobble chair you'd have to create some sort of a cover for it to make it skid proof the hokey stool comes skid proof the uh, these other surfaces that I that I have up here are all skid proof and that's important for the sit but these are wonderful sits with movement so we can arrange the play space the physical environment can be manipulated inside and outside early childhood people took classes in the long ago and one of the first things that they were taught is in room arrangement make sure for example that you don't have such a setup that it would look like a racetrack and then children would be enticed to be running around so we're talking the whole room, offering mats and rugs and trays to define work and play space. Uh, a lot of the Montessori kinds of, of items. Um, where to put one's tushy, th signals that, 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 things that signal that for children. Uh, using the floor more. When I began in early childhood, and I do have to tell you, I, I began in early childhood special ed without ever having a class or seeing a class in operation. Um, and the first, one of the first things I noticed as my children were playing with things uh, on, on, that were on the table was that pieces kept falling on the floor and I noticed that they didn't play with things for very long and I looked and I looked and I thought well heavens if I were playing with something and pieces kept falling on the floor I don't think I'd want to play with it either so I got to thinking about it <coughs> excuse me and I got rid of the tables in my classroom now I had no idea in most of the world that tables and chairs were needed because children ate in the classrooms we went to the lunchroom to eat but I got rid of the tables and what happened when everything happened on the floor and I don't know about you but I grew up playing on the floor reading on the floor watching television lying on the floor coloring on the floor writing while I was on the floor um, I found that the children were much more comfortable and when they were on the floor they they were more apt to play with the things they'd given up upon now also don't forget when you're talking about the play space don't forget these factors for the environment temperature lighting sound the feel and smell all of those are actually part of the physical environment and the comfort of the space um, some of you in your work would be um, affected by environmental rating scales and those are, are things that are paid attention to with that these are things that you kind of know and do um, they're they're very normal for early childhood settings and I just I just want to show you that there's much that you're already doing that makes your environment a better place for children to function particularly children with ADHD so then another challenge often is getting back to that circle or story time it's for some for many children they need to learn to participate they need to learn to for for to actually to endure it 
And so one of the things I recommend, particularly when, when there are a number of children who are having problems during circle or story times, is cancel what you've been doing with your official st circle or story time and instead implement what I call 30-second circles. And that means the children come in and they're playing, and every now and then you say to the children, I'm going to ask you to stop soon. And when I ask you to stop, you can leave the toys, but I'm going to want you to come over here. And then they come over, they don't even sit down, and you say, let's sing the hello song. Thank you for coming to sing the hello song. Now you can go back and play some more. And then you, you let them know that you're going to keep calling them over to do something. And so each discrete part of your circle time can be done calling over one part at a time as they are leaving their toys so they don't feel the way they feel when they have to put things away. And then when, they, when they've kind of mastered <coughs> excuse me, the coming and going, then you start joining parts of your circle time together. You want to make it longer. So you have them come over for two or three things. And you say, and next time I'm going to have you come over for the hello song and the weather. Next time I'm going to have you come over for the song and the the counting, whatever it is that you have in it. Um, it it's something that teaches children, and, and, and slowly you, uh, as you see them mastering how much they can handle being together, then you are making it longer and longer to stretch their capacity. And you get to a point when you're having two or three things strung together at the one time, of course it's no longer 30 seconds, that you say, you know, you're going to be here for a while. It might be more comfortable to sit. And then you're teaching them the sit and the longer periods. It's often recommended that children with challenges are seated right next to us. My concern with that is then we can't really communicate well with them. We can't see their body language, they can't see ours to learn those communications, I would recommend seating that child across. And then if you need to develop some secret symbols to do some communicating, <coughs> excuse me, you can do that because you can see each other. And the other thing I like to do is remind you that any book can be a chapter book. You can tell when the children are getting a little restive that even though there's more to the book, they really can't handle more. So the, uh, there were a couple of things I did. I said to the children as I felt they were approaching that point, just a minute. And then I walked myself across to the other side of the circle, sat myself down with the book, and then they had to turn around. Just that pause and them changing position was enough so that we could go through more of a book as I'm teaching them to last longer. And then if I felt that there weren't things I could do to get them through to the end of a book, any book can be a chapter book, and we can say, let's stop this. I'm going to put a marker here. Let's stop now, and we'll finish this later. So arranging the play space, this falls under the things that you already know. Though there is some controversy recently, I've been reading about how much to have on display in our play spaces. Um, we're coming back again to talking about sparser, less on display. I, I haven't made up my mind yet, and I don't know if you're thinking about it and making up yours then it's really important that we not only provide, but we teach organization and structure. So we can continue to provide structure and limits. We can use first-then language to help with ordering. We can create lists for tasks. We can all recite, and we can all use pictures as cues. So, First, then language, in case you haven't encountered it. It means, oh, honey, of course you can knock all those block de blocks down, but first you need to blah, blah, blah. Then you may knock down the blocks. It's putting first something that a child is less apt to care to do and want to do. 
Um, so put them off with first you're going to do make meet my little requirement, then you can do what it is you want to do. Creating lists for tasks. We oh back in the olden days when I was in school, we did something called task analysis for everything that we thought children were going to be doing, and we had to very carefully think about the order of the discrete parts of any task and make sure we weren't overlooking any, any steps. We can do that with children, and we can talk about it with children. You're going to go to the bathroom, and first you'll go, you know, first you'll, you'll see that there's a place to sit, second you will check and make sure there's toilet paper, third you'll go to the bathroom, fourth you'll, you'll use the toilet paper, fifth you'll flush the toilet, etc., etc., and you can talk about the order of these things and then say to the children, where are we going to go? And what are you going to do first when you get there? And then what are you going to do? And then what are you going to do? Um, and then pictures as cues. We'll, we'll get more into that later too. But uh, pictures for, uh, for schedules and pictures to remember an order and a process are so helpful to all children. So this is just a little old fact. When a, when a ritual or a routine is practiced and repeated enough, a child learns what is expected. So he or she thinks of each step in order because we have made sure that that order is how it's done, and they feel secure in the predictability of the process, and that makes them behave in a more predictable manner. And moving and fidgeting. Children need to move many much more than others. Children need to fidget, many much more than others. So build the movement in, as I did with the book, because I moved myself, then they had to move. Make sure that movement <coughs> is allowed for anyone. Remove the stigma associated with movement, with use of fidgets. You can't assign one to a, to a child. You can't say, oh, here, honey, I see you need this. Use this as a fidget. Because what you don't know for that fidget is what size object will be helpful to the child, the texture, the heft, the flexibility of the object, and the magic. So they have to choose their own. I've always recommending, recommended having a large container of fidgets, a basket, and presenting it to the children, saying, these are fidgets. Fidgets help some people to sit and to listen when they hold them when they hold fidgets. And so here are fidgets, and if anyone would like to use one, you may. Well, I would say day one, every child is going to run to try a fidget. But most children actually don't need them. And so they're going to put it back. But what remains is fidgets are now a part of your environment. They're accepted and normal. And so for those who care and need to continue to use a fidget, you're not going to have anyone particularly noticing because you've removed the stigma. You've made it, <coughs> sorry, you've made it a natural item in your environment. It's so important to provide enough material. Enough helps to create a sense of calm, but it's a delicate balance with the enough. Children in our settings often are worried if they're going, I'm, that they're not going to get a turn or, or there won't be something left for them. So I want to take you to, um, I'm assuming you've been to buffets, and when you go to a buffet, most of us, when we go to a buffet, we look at the very end because that's where the desserts are and we see a dessert that we'd really like. And so as we're going through the buffet, we get this strange feeling of, oh, what if that dessert isn't left when I get there? What if there are no more? And, and, and what we're having is a, a version of feeling of a, of a feeling of desperation. Well, what we adults mostly do when we want to make sure we get that dessert is instead of starting at the beginning of the buffet line, we go get that dessert, put it at our table, and then go back. And then we can feel comfortable. We don't have to worry about if there will be enough or if we'll get our turn at it. 
I think that our settings are like a buffet for children. And, and it's important that we recognize that they are often worried that there won't be enough for them to have a turn. And they feel that feeling of desperation that we adults can so simply take care of with getting the dessert first. But you see, when a child in our classroom rushes to do something to be there first or have it first, it's often thought of as a negative behavior. Tay, when you see that happening, think about that buffet and see if you can then look at that child with a different lens. These are the things that we always look at with materials. The accessibility and organization promote children's independent use of the, of the materials. It's very important. It's very important that children are independent in our environments, and the more we can, the more we can have enough for them. It's better to have, for example, four identical red trucks than four different trucks so that you don't have children concerned about, is the red truck going to be there when I want to play? So you might want to look, you know, work with colleagues and, and rearrange how you have materials in your classrooms to have more that's the same so that children don't need to feel that way until you can teach them a way to feel otherwise. So we need to make toys and play materials easier to grasp, more intriguing, more interactive. We need to increase the sensory input for some children, meaning sometimes you just need to put things like um, extracts, uh, vanilla extract, peppermint extract on something so that it, it also has a smell. Sometimes you need to add texture uh, so that the children will be more attracted to something. And always we're looking to promote independence. We want children to be able to do whatever it is without us. So let me go back to that for just a moment. In my classroom, when I paid a lot of attention to what I was doing and at one point realized it just wasn't working well enough, one of the things I did was I created an image for myself. And that image was that, my, that I had lofted my classroom and I arranged all the toy and play materials, taught the children how to access and use them, and then I went up and I ate bonbons because I wanted them independent of me and that my only job was now and then to come down and alter the environment to move their learning forward. Uh, that image helped me a lot in what I did. Maybe it would help you. Time. Time is really important. Again, with time, there can be a feeling of desperation that there won't be enough time to do it, or that children are interrupted by the demands to hurry, clean up, or give someone else a turn. They each have their own pace. So the schedule is written. And the reality is that when you write a schedule, it's to teach the children the order of the day. It's to teach their parents the order of the day. But that's the schedule you write and you post. But there's what I call the real schedule. And so the real schedule actually has to show how long all the transitions take. So if you have breakfast followed by circle, followed by centers, and then going outside, how long does it take to get from breakfast to circle? How long does it take to get from circle to centers? Because if breakfast is over at 8.30 and circle time starts at 8.30, you haven't built in that transition. When you're doing your writing of your plans, you need to account for those transition times. You need to write them in. The whole rest of the world only needs to see the order of your day, but you need to have them so that you don't get this feeling in your stomach of wriggling and jiggling and tickling inside as you're saying, oh my gosh, it's 8.30, breakfast is over, and it's 8.30 and we have to start circle, and, and we don't have time to, and, and now we're already late. So 
can hold that in your thinking and see what it does to reduce your frustration and your planning when your schedule is the real schedule. Use visual measurement tools, and let me show you some, because visual measurement tools help time to be real and have meaning for children, and it reduces frustration for children, and they aren't as apt to be surprised when it's time to end or change. It gives them time for processing what they see and hear so they can, they can understand and respond. So the first is a time timer. I don't know if any of you are using it. We've got a quick... There's less red in classrooms that use them. The children are saying, oops, we're almost out of red. And that's how they know that time is passing. And then there are all of these. I always thought these were toys. And... five minutes. I have some that are 10 minutes, that take 10 minutes. These are things that are, are visual and help children to understand the passage of time so that they can manage things and you don't need to be the constant timekeeper. Picture schedules are so often, you are, are kind of always used in settings now, and picture schedules actually come to us from the world of autism spectrum disorder. Uh, they, the, the teachers of, of children with autism started using them because the visual is so, is so helpful, and it leached over into good to best practice in early childhood altogether. It doesn't matter if you're using a horizontal or a vertical for your picture schedule. Often you have to, it's the space you have, I prefer horizontal because then it's also leading into teaching that left-to-right progression for, for literacy, for reading. Uh, what I do recommend is when, <coughs> excuse me, when something on that picture schedule is finished, then it's turned over or covered so that the children understand it's over and this is where we are now. And you might even have displayed, even though you have the pictures for your whole day, you might only have showing what we just finished, what is now, and what's coming next until you teach that whole concept. And so our, here are some picture schedules that I've seen in classrooms. Um, they aren't exactly how I would do it, but the important thing is these are teachers who looked at their youngsters, looked at their settings, and created picture schedules that they felt would have the most meaning to the youngsters in their classroom. And that's what's most important. And with picture schedules come the use of graphics. Starting picture schedules should start with actual pictures of the children and the things in your environment. And then if we're thinking literacy, move on to graphics and words. Uh, and then the reminders and cues that we need for children. Pictures can show the order, can show how it should look. Maybe you need a picture so that everyone can see how that shelf and manipulatives needs to look with everything put away, and so everyone then learns where it belongs. Verbal cues that children tell what the plan is, their intent, the how, the order. And you, very, it's very, very important that you self-talk your thinking to model for children how to think through things things that you're going to do. And transitions. Transitions are so tough for so many youngsters because even though we've done our nice teacher thing and we've said five more minutes, 
children aren't always tuned in. The children we are working with, um, I've always said they need engraved invitations. They need extra mornings. They need those reminders. And that's why tools such as a time timer, if you, if you go around and, and make sure children are looking at them, then they're not caught by surprise when time is actually up. And communication is a huge part of our environment. And it's teaching all the words. But it isn't just teaching all the words. It's how they sound. Um, I have said to teachers, if your mouth doesn't hurt by the end of the day, you're not doing your job. Um, and, and this all relates to the language development that we do. And is language is just incredibly important. And teaching how words sound. So you have. Emily, who comes up to you crying and saying, Frank, hit me. And then what most often happens is an early childhood teacher would sweetly say, oh, I'm so sorry that Frank hurt you. Did you get a chance to tell Frank not to hit you because hitting hurts? And then she might go over to Frank, and then she's going to model what you just said. And she's going to say, don't hit me. Hitting hurts. Well, I don't think that's the message. That's not how those words sound. And so if you're saying, if you want them to learn how it sounds, then you have to say, I hope you had a chance to say, don't hit me, hitting hurts. It's not just using words. Words have to have a sound. And children need to learn names, labels, and scripts. They need the whole thing. If you're looking for a resource for a lot of <clears throat> graphics that could be helpful in your classroom, the Head Start Center for Inclusion has a wealth of, of materials <coughs> for you. <coughs> and so this is an example of a classroom voice volume chart. Um, rather than indoor voices and outdoor voices, because you know what? Sometimes outdoors we use a voice that sounds indoors. It's, that's a real confusing concept for children. This is not as confusing. And with communication, speak more slowly. There's a professor who says, if we speak more slowly to help children understand, if teachers could only talk more slowly, fewer children would be diagnosed with learning disabilities, behavior problems, and hearing disorders. He said that the average adult speaks about 170 words in a minute, but he said most 5- to 7-year-olds can only catch 120. Well, we're talking children. Two to five, for example. If five to seven are getting 120, what are two to sevens getting? And he said high school students process about 140 to 145. So speak more slowly. And the do's are important, not the don'ts. When we say to a child, don't run, often the only word they've heard from our mouth is the word run. I used to say to it, I used to say to children, "Oh, you forgot to tell your feet to walk. Please tell them to walk." Ludicrous does work. So in this cartoon, guys, I just mopped the floor. Try to stay off it until it dries. Okay. And then as they're playing, the one says, "Are you sure this is what she meant?" And the child says, "That didn't sound like a dare to you." So check for understanding. Always check for understanding. This is really important during the first weeks. Um, my niece is actually the person who said this to me, not as a teacher, as a parent. She said that she believed her most important job as a parent when the children were starting school each school year was to teach the ropes, the rules, the routines. And children need to learn the rules, the pragmatics of language, the social dialogues and scripts. And we need to do some role playing and writing social stories, uh, having them practice, rehearse, and preparing. Uh, I had an aunt um, who, anytime we had a, there was a family function, before we got there or before when people got to our house, she'd say, and here's, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so are going to be there, and when you're there, this is what's going to be happening, and this is what you will be doing. And there were these lists of behaviors and expectations, and always the very last thing she said, and we would always be smiling. 
It's the preparation we give children and the rules, how we write rules or how rules are written. Write them as positives. <coughs> That's the first, the first and most important thing. They must be positive, the do's, not the don'ts. And don't and it's it's important also. In many model rules say we walk in school. It would be better if it would say I walk in school because when children have learned the rules, and then you can look at a child and say, what's the rule about walking? If your rule is I walk in school, then that's what the child's going to say to you. And I walk means them. They don't always know that they're part of we. And so using I statements absolutely helps them. And don't forget the I'm sorry's. Oh, the other day I was with a youngster who, who every time she did something wrong, and I'm telling you, she did something wrong fell out of her every four minutes. And she said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll never do that again. And, and that isn't what we want them to say. And I tried talking to her about it a lot, and I said, I know that you, you know that you wish you'd never do it again, but that's not a promise you can make. But what you can say is, I'm sorry, I'll try, blah, blah, blah. Everyone can try. We can't fail at trying, but we can always fail at never repeating the mistake. So let's give children things to say and ways to be so that they feel more successful. So we create an environment for success to foster independence, exploration, practice, challenge, interaction, creativity, and that's all an environment for success does. And we always, always, always model, guide, coach, and teach whatever it is that we want children to do. Never assume that they know how to do it. Never assume that because 75% of the youngsters in front of you are doing it correctly, that any of that 25% are going to catch on simply because that's the model that they see. Many children need much more intervention and teaching. So here is one of those popular sayings, if a child doesn't know how to read, we teach them. How to swim, we teach them. How to multiply, we teach them. How to drive, we teach them. And how to behave. Most often what happens is they get punished when we need to teach them. So rule number one is presume it needs to be taught. Uh, this is one of the things that you can download. It may help you in your planning. It's a graphic organizer that could help you with your problem solving. And just I want to touch on this for children who are undergoing treatment for ADHD, for children who are on medications, because medication is so very helpful. So before medications, that child was very disorganized but I want you to see after medication. The child skills have not changed. Medication may alter how a child can now tune in, can now interact with us, but we still need to teach that organization they didn't know in the first place. So teachers commonly say, he always needs to blah, blah, blah. And I'd like you to take that word needs and I'd like you to throw it away. I'm sorry, he always wants to blah, blah, blah. It isn't wanting. Children are doing what comes naturally to them. And they aren't wanting to do it. It's that they're needing to do it. So the question you're constantly asking yourself is, why is so-and-so needing to do it? this way, needing to say it, needing to have it. And if you can answer that question, it can help you in helping a child. It's important to know this as you're coming up with strategies.
there's no strategy that is bad or wrong, and it's not your fault or the children's if it isn't working, but sometimes the strategy that you're considering is simply not the one for that particular situation. So it's your plan that needs reevaluating and structuring and restructuring. So here's a short bibliography of places I like to go looking for information. Chad.org, which includes the National Resource Center, and Attitude Magazine, Understood.org, and the I don't have it written here, but it'll be on what you get from when you download the Head Start Center for Inclusion that I already mentioned, and the Head Start Early Childhood Learning and Knowledge Center, um, CSEFL the Center for Social-Emotional Foundations for Early Learning. Uh, they'll help you with a lot of graphics. And here's my last bit of advice. Things take time. So if you're going to work on something, give yourself all the time in the world that you need in order to make it work. Don't get scared. Don't get frustrated because it hasn't worked first try. And that's it. I'd love to have questions from you. Well, we do have um, a couple of questions that have come in. And just sort of wondering about some of those other ideas when you were talking about in incorporating different sort of sensory types into the fidget toys and into um, the other activities. Could you give a couple more examples? I know that you had given a few, but um, just maybe some other common, common ways you incorporate those additional sensory features into the classroom? When, when we think sensory in early childhood, we frequently think of that sensory table. So you think, oh, well, whatever I have in the sensory table right now, wouldn't that be interesting if it also had a scent? And then, you know, and the tactile thing is already, you know, it already offers <coughs> something tactile that's intriguing. And what I've read, and I do have to admit, it's not something I'd learned about while I was still in a classroom. Um, and it's just so intriguing to me. So it was, for example, spray the blocks with something that would have a scent. That could make the blocks more enticing. And so look around at the things with, with which the children are playing and see if scent in an area, scent on an object, is something that even though it might not have any value to you, could add value to that area or item so that a child would be intensed, enticed to engage with it more. Does that, does that help? I think so. I think that's that's a great additional suggestion. Um, the purpose is to entice children. Mm -hmm. That's okay. It. Great. Okay, Somebody else was referring back to you mentioning about self-talk, um, and was that just just wanting some clarification? Was that teach, teaching the children to self-talk, helping helping the children self-talk, or themselves using self-talk? And um, they were just wanting some clarification on sort it's of what you were referring to with talk. We, we have learned over our lives to do so many things, and there, there's a, a there is a non, there's a, a communication going on in our brain as we're doing something. Children haven't learned that yet. So <clears throat> when we as adults are engaged in something, then the children need to hear the thinking steps that we're going through to plan or engage. So it gives them a model. Um, Oh, I forgot to get I forgot to get the napkins for lunch and and we really need them and I'm busy right now. I wonder who I could ask to get them. That's something you wouldn't be saying out loud. But if children hear that, then they can hear you say, "Oh, well, of course. I can ask Renee to get them." And then the problem is solved. Whatever you can come up with that they hear you doing that planning so that they then learn. And then you can take them through asking, how are you going to do that? What are you going to do first? So that they have an experience then to self-talk out loud to you so that you see them growing that skill. Yes, I think so. 
What about, have you ever used a calming area, and what is your experience with using those? You know, I don't think I was smart enough to call it a calming area when I used it. <clears throat> there weren't many times when I needed such a place, um, but I do remember having a couple of children who, who cared, to, who needed to cry a lot. And I wasn't so sure that it was a, that, you know, that, that what the reasons were. And so what I created was, rather than saying, oh, there's nothing to cry about, if you, if you, if you need to cry, that's fine. And, and, you know, and I can put my arm around you while you're crying, or if you, want, if you need to cry for a long time and my, my arm around you isn't enough, then here is a pillow you can sit on, and that could be your crying place. And you can cry as long as you need to, and then when, you're, you, know, when, when you think I can help you, I would be very happy to help you. I'll check with you. You can come and tell me I can help you. Um, so, yeah. And, and I think in classrooms now we have a lot of emphasis when it, with the environmental scales that are being used with quality rating systems on having places where children can be alone. They don't always have to be doing something with someone. And so there are many private places built into classrooms. Yes, great. Thank you. Um, I have... A Maybe a little more of a complex question that's coming. Um, so this is from someone who is a school social worker, and they're actually in an elementary school versus the preschool age, but I think that this um, might be relevant to some preschool teachers as well. So for those sort of individuals in a support role within a school, um, her situation is sometimes she's having teachers coming to her insisting that a student has ADHD. and. Um, you know, she's wondering, do you have any suggestions for how to support teachers who have these preconceived ideas that, you know, oh, because this student is um, behaving a certain way, because they're maybe inattentive, they're squirming a little bit, that they have ADHD, and rather than maybe jumping to an evaluation, what are some maybe ways that teachers could work with those children to see if the behaviors improve um, before referring for an evaluation? And I think you said the key, working with the child to see if there's improvement. Um, we can't diagnose. Um, and and that's what what this per this person is saying. You know, she knows as a social worker that we can't be the diagnosticians, but we can't allow ourselves to fall back on, oh, it must be ADHD, and therefore they must get to a diagnostician, we must first work with work with whatever the behavior is that we're see, that concerns us, and see what we can do to make it otherwise. So often, children just have not had an opportunity to learn to do something another way. It doesn't mean they're intending bad. It doesn't mean they're intending in. Um, <coughs> Excuse me. That they're attend that they're intending inattention. It doesn't mean that they're intending impulsivity. It's just in their previous experience, those are the ways that have worked for them. So we have to work very hard to teach them other ways and see what the results are before you go running to a doctor. We have a lot, of, a lot of ability to do a lot of things, to build children to have more of the skills they need rather than thinking that it's a deficit causing it. Simply can be a lack of experience. Yes, thank you. Um, what about strategies for ADHD children who are having trouble socially? Um, do you have any suggestions to help the ADHD child as well as um, helping the neurotypical children to embrace um, the children with ADHD? Uh, first, oh, let's see, start by teaching the child the things that they need to know and that's the role playing, it's the modeling, teaching the, the words and how those words need to sound that they need to use. Um, it's writing social stories with them. Um, and using them. And if we as adults 
do not allow ourselves to react to those children who still need to learn a lot of things. If we if we don't allow ourselves to react that 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 is a negative, that it's bad or wrong, then the children, the other children, won't perceive it as bad or wrong. They get those cues from us. I, I, I can't think of a real social one right now. Well, maybe it is. So it's circle time. There's the youngster who turns their back during, so, during social time, circle time. And people presume that that's a bad behavior, that they're turning their back to ignore us. Well, for many children, they're turning their back because children understand that during that circle time, they're expected to listen. And children know how they need to do, how, what they need to do to do it better. They want to meet our expectation. And so this child is saying, it's really important that I listen. So I'm turning around because if my, I get distracted by what, by what I'm looking at. I need to do all the listening I can. And so they put their, their bodies in a position where then they're, they can, they can tune in better listening because the visual is not being, um, used the same way. Um, and, and so those are the things. And so in, when the child turns around, you don't say, oh, this child is being oppositional. You might say to yourself, oh, I have a feeling so-and-so needs to do that so they can hear better what's going on because they've learned that listening is really important here. And just respect it. <laughs> and then the others aren't saying, oh, look at Carl, he turned around. And then looking for a teacher to say, well, Carl, you need to turn back around. You don't need to get to that at all. In fact, you could even say, Carl, thank you for turning around when it's important to listen. I know it's easier for you to listen that way. That's smart of you to have thought of that. Thank you. Great. And I actually just have one more question. And um, are the resources you listed, do they have some good social stories? Um, or are any of them in particular um, focused? on sort of that social aspect of ADHD? Um, CSEPL would have them. I think that the Head Start sites would have them. But it's more important with the social story that you actually create it with the child or the children so that it's made for your setting. It, it, it needs to be that up close and personal. Social stories are aided with photographs of children um, looking like the way we want them to look, doing the way you know what we want them to do. Um, so I would, I you can you can use so, you know some samples. You could probably Google social stories and and get a lot of examples. But again, they work better, particularly with young children, if you write them together. And with older children, it's it's. Um, Nice to see what if they can write it and how much or little of an assist they need from us. All right, great. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Wonderlich, for your insights and suggestions today. And I also want to thank all of our participants for joining us. This concludes our webcast. Why are older adults the fastest growing population to be diagnosed with ADHD? Is there such a thing as adult onset ADHD? Go to the CHAD website, www.helpforadhd.org. That's www.help and the number 4, adhd.org.